Welcome to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Over the next hour, Deborah, Tracy, and their guests will help you understand therapist burnout and how to feel better now. Listen close to bring vitality back to your practice. Now, here are Deborah and Tracy. Welcome to Reconceive. I'm Deborah. And I'm Tracy. And we are back today to talk about going rogue. That's right. So we've been doing this radio show for about, well, this is our 11th episode. And we believe we've come up with a brilliant idea. (laughs) A cunning plan. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, we've learned some things over the last 11 weeks. And we knew we would. But we're um, finding ourselves in a place that's also a little bit unexpected. Yes. So most of our podcasts have been talking about how science has validated the intuition and ideas of some luminaries. And a lot of this work that we're talking about, the intuitive part goes back to the 1960s or 70s. Yeah. In some cases, even earlier. Right. Some some of the ideas that we're going to be trying to bring forward have been around. We didn't dream them up, but they got squashed. They got squashed, but then science validated a lot of them through polyvagal theory and neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So they're making a comeback, thank goodness. Yes. And now they're not considered just, oh, touchy feely pseudoscience right we're they've been drawn out of the world of woo <laughs> right <laughs> right so so tracy and i are going rogue and um you know we hope we don't get in trouble for this but we're going to talk about some fairly controversial um or at least edgy approaches to helping people today So um, we've been talking about how we live in a toxic culture, and and we're not the first to say that. Gaber Mate has has said that and and talks about that extensively in his new book, The Myth of Normal. Um, But we're also noticing a backlash. So we could probably say we live in a backlash culture that back in the 60s and early 70s, um, in my industry, they were talking about things like co-therapy and group and relationship as the basic um, vehicle for change. And then that sort of went away. It did. It turned into a very top-down oriented culture, this right. mental health field. Yeah, do you know how that happened? How how did the backlash take place? Well, I think people can be very uncomfortable with change. And a lot of the ideas from the 60s and 70s were a ch- big change from the ideas of the 1950s. Yes, they were. They were a- about circularity, about connection. About community, about protecting the planet. Right. 
women's rights, human rights, right. civil rights. Yeah. The dignity of every individual. Yes. And that kind of got squished. It did. And um, we're going to talk a little bit more about how that happened, because what we have now in the industry, um, certainly in the industry of mental health, but also healthcare at large and the helping professions in general, we have solo practice. We have um, unidisciplinary work, meaning one psychologist in the room, um, one body worker in the room, one physician. Um, we don't have two or two different kinds of professionals working in the same room very often. We also have therapists as cowboys. And by that, I mean, get in there and do it yourself. Tough it out, even if you're in a pandemic. Right. And that, that reminds me of when I talked about my conscious decision to make my, to, to, in a way, never take no for an answer. Right. And always have a successful session, which looks, sounds ludicrous now. But it is that rugged individualistic worldview. Oh, absolutely. I yes. have to do this. I have to make this work for my client. Yes. Which puts a lot of pressure on the practitioner. Yes. Another thing that we have in the mainstream, schedules are packed by the hour. You just get people in as, as many as you can in one day. Which means if you take a lunch, you might only take 15 minutes. Right. I've I've noticed a tremendous need to put more time between mm -hmm. clients. Right. In order to make sure I'm ready for the next client. Right. Exactly. Me too. But we're weird. We're going rogue. We are going rogue. <laughs> Most people are <laughs> glad. That. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness. Uh, well, so again, back in the mainstream, we focus outward and we keep going, even if we feel bad, because our focus is on the client. Our focus is on someone else, not on ourselves. Another piece of this is therapy as cerebral. We need to make it insight-oriented. Um, there's talk and more talk and more talk, and people need, or they think they need insight. They think they need to understand the therapist thinks that she needs to understand in a very linear way what the problem is and how to solve it. The problem, one big problem with that I see is language is linear. It is. And the people are coming to us with these multidimensional problems. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. talking isn't always the best way to unravel these things right which is a little bit counterintuitive but so also another thing that's happened and this is kind of insidious and this is where we might piss you off a little bit listeners but cbt let's just talk about cbt for a minute so why is the field of mental health so dominated with the language of cbt and why do so many people think that cognitive behavioral therapy is the gold standard. Do you have a guess, Tracy? Well, cognition is valued above all else in, 
our society. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that's a big driving force. Yes, that is very true. And when you look at what can be measured and what can be quantified, thus can be published more readily in a, um, a journal, a, a, a referee peer-reviewed journal about outcomes in therapy, thoughts, behaviors, those things can be more easily codified and measured and written than the more qualitative experience of emotion, relationship, connection. So CBT has dominated at least the journals that are the, the output of research in my field. And I, I would imagine that that structure makes it easier to bill for. It does. So insurance companies like that kind of data because it fits into a graph very easily and it does looks good on paper. I mean, it does. Yes, yeah, I'm so glad you said that because CBT has also taught insurance, the the insurance industry, how to regard helping. Does that right, make sense? Right. So you better be asking your practitioners. Have they measured the outcomes? Yes. And if so, how? And the same thing is true in physical therapy. You know, you get out your goniometer. Goniometer, what's that? It's It, it measures joint ranges of motion. Okay. <laughs> so you evaluate in the beginning, you, you do whatever you do, and then you get out your goniometer at the end. <laughs> And you reevaluate and hope for a positive change and increased range of motion. Uh -huh. And that is, you know, easy to keep track of, easy to quantify, and insurance companies appreciate that kind of data. Okay. But the most important thing at the end of a session is how does your client feel? Right. And do they trust you? Do they feel like they got understood and connected yeah with you uh, yeah so that includes me in the process that's part of us going rogue <laughs> so deborah was just considering how the therapist feels how did the therapist connect mm -hmm. so instead of thinking as just what is the outcome for the client if you think of it as more of a relationship, it it just makes more sense. We talked about how I think uh, Amy Banks was saying, Gene Baker Miller said once that if, if one person in the session is not benefiting, then really nobody's benefiting. That blew my mind. Me too. It made me think that therapy sessions should be healing for everybody that's part participating. Right. Which takes us out of the realm of cyborgs. It does. It puts you in the present. <laughs> right. I mean, you've talked about how so many people who are practicing either body work or mental health work, 
um, or whatever, are acting as cyborgs in that they're not fully present as themselves. Right. This happens a lot. I believe people reach a certain level of competency and then oftentimes the learning stops or is greatly slowed down or diminished because once you're able to make a living doing what you train to do, then you don't have to expand. Mm. You can use the same things over and over again. They worked in the past, and so you keep doing them the way you've always done them? Right. So we're designed to become automated. So once you reach a certain level of competency, the work you're doing can basically be automated. Right. Where you are in a way dissociated oh, yeah you're you're present but you're not really as present as you could be exactly these elements are all related because when we talk about automaticity therapy being automatic automated we're talking about that very cerebral experience maybe following a manual following the steps in a protocol and being um, just very cerebral about it, not not being fully present and engaged with my physical self, my emotional self, but sort of going by rote. Yes. And if you can break away from that, it makes the work you're doing, because Deborah and I, I know – in my practice, I'm doing this, she's doing it, and when we work together, we're always open to new discoveries, stealing from uh, not Bagnell's work. We have flexible goals. We have no real idea what the outcome is going to be, mm-hmm. and that allows us the freedom to weave our way through a session and uh, it just makes it more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like learning to dance. You you can't phone it in. You have to be there engaged. Your whole self has to be engaged or you'll trip and fall or not be able to move or something. Right. Mainly what I believe you would lose or not have is the connection with the person you're dancing with. Oh, yeah. If if you're involved in this kind of organic process of not knowing, you may have a, a flexible goal out there, but if you don't know exactly where you're going, you just it's more exciting for the therapist yeah and i believe it's more exciting for the client as well i believe so too because if you think you know where you're going and you think you know all the answers that is conveyed non-verbally and your client feels like uh, i'm just a script right it feels much more rigid yeah 
then the practices that we're developing, focusing on relationship, not being rigid, not making the client part of a script, as you said. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, th- I think it's time for big changes like that. Mm-hmm. But as we as we talked about, you know, you told me the title of this radio show, Reconceive, which I loved. And I started thinking, well, we've been bringing all this great science into our show. But then I thought, why does anybody ever do this work alone? Mm -hmm. That question has changed everything for me. Why would anybody do this alone? Right. We can make it so much easier on ourselves, I think. Yeah. So much more fun. So, Another thing that happens in mainstream helping culture is that because of all of the things we've just talked about, the solo practice, the the focus on one discipline at a time, um, focusing outward and, and just keeping going no matter how we feel, that all comes from a particular worldview, a more mechanistic worldview um, in which the individual is the unit of analysis. The individual person is the unit of change. And so you're just focusing on their problem. Even if you're taking a trauma approach, you're focusing on just that individual and their emotions and their goals and their behaviors and what they have done to self-sabotage in the past. And so going rogue, I think, is going to mean widening that out to look at the context the social context, the historical context, the relational context, all of that. Yes. And just hearing you describe that makes me cringe a little bit. Does it? About making the client the singular focus. Right. Which is the way my practice used to feel. But now every session feels like relationship building. Yeah. Right. It sounds so simple, but it's really quite deep, quite profound. So when we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about this change in paradigm and how Tracy and I do this in our own work individually now and how we're putting it together and going rogue. Going rogue. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Okay. We'll be back. takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. 
Connect with us, and we'll connect with you. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on LinkedIn. Get the first word about happenings with the network, where our next live event will be, and what's up with our hosts. Look up Voice America on LinkedIn. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive. Welcome back to Reconceive. We are talking about going rogue. That's right. Deborah and I are going to start Reconceive Therapy, which is a practice where we work together as co-therapists. Yes. Just like we're working together today as co-hosts. Yes. And we're going to tell you a little story to illustrate how this is going to work. So we've been recruiting colleagues of ours to be guinea pigs, to let us work on them, essentially, Um, inviting them into a space where we are both engaged in the process. And so we recently had a session with a colleague that I work very closely with, and um, it was surprising. It was really productive. Uh, I think we were only in there an hour, about, and a lot happened. A lot happened that really surprised me. So, So this person... Um, was presenting with just a lot of depression, a lot of body shame. um, A lot of self-doubt. Yeah. Inability to engage socially or a lack of desire to do that as well. Oh, yeah. Complete lack of desire to socialize. Although this therapist, when they were working, they could, at least this is the way they described it, they could force themselves to be in this social engagement mode Mm -hmm. while they were in session and working with their clients, Mm -hmm. which to me sounds exhausting. It does, but I think it's pretty common. There are lots of us who who do this work who feel more grounded when we're face-to-face with our clients than we do at any other time. Yes. I feel that as well. Do you? But one of the other things I feel, because a lot of our clients come in in, with defensive mechanisms activated, Mm -hmm. so they are most often in fight flight, some in freeze as well. But the session can begin with this feeling of combativeness. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I was so attracted to this idea of co-therapy. When we were working on this colleague that volunteered, having Deborah in the room for me was help helping regulate my nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. And it was for me too. So you've said that Oftentimes, therapists have their thinking hijacked. 
Yes. So we've talked in uh, past podcasts about how when you move into a state with defensive mechanisms, creativity and thinking is greatly diminished. Mm -hmm. So we've also talked about our mirroring systems. Mm -hmm. So when it's just the client and the therapist, that's the only mirroring opportunity. And one person will normally, in my experience, dominate. So if I'm a therapist in social engagement, and I have a client come in who's strongly in fight flight mm -hmm. because these are graded responses. Mm -hmm. If they're strongly in fight flight, they can easily drag me into fight flight. Mm -hmm. And then my thinking is hijacked. Yeah. And my creativity is basically gone. All I have to rely on at that point is what I've learned in the past. Right. So that's when I become, in a sense, much more of a cyborg. Right. Your thinking has been effectively hijacked. I know that feeling. I know that I've spent a lot of hours where my thinking has been hijacked and I've just fallen back on my clinical seat, so to speak, and just doing from rote memorization what I what I know has worked in the past. But it feels terrible. It feels exhausting. It feels boring. Boring. When you fall into that automaticity, it's it's right. There's no vitality there. Right. And just to kind of take a couple of steps back, we're talking about being in these different biobehavioral states like fight, flight, freeze, and social engagement, yes. which is the green zone, right? The green zone, as long as social engagement is active, defensive mechanisms are down-regulated, mm -hmm. you can focus on internal demands, i.e. homeostasis. And that's where healing occurs. Okay. So if my client drags me into fight-flight, then I fall back to just recipes. Right. But with Deborah in the room with me, I can really hold space for her as she's doing what she does. Right. She can hold space for me. Mm -hmm. So now the chances of a client dragging us into a state of defense or dysregulation, the chances of that happening are greatly diminished. Yes, exactly. So maybe it would be helpful here to talk about what each of us does in a session when we're not working together and then come back to this hour that we spent with Penny and what happened there and how it was different. Good idea. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll go first. Okay. So a session with me starts out with um, some talk. I mean, I say that I don't do talk therapy because I do EMDR in almost every session, but uh, there's a little bit of talking. There's there's some catching up to do. Um, I'm taking a lot of notes while my person is talking, and I'm zooming in on the emotion that they express, either verbally or um, perhaps through nonverbals. I just can feel it um, or see it. So 
I'm listening for entry points into the narrative where we can start the EMDR. Um, I want to start that as soon as possible. I don't want to, I don't want to sit there too long and just talk because something happens when we do that. And um, it's like a momentum is lost. When the person comes in, usually there's some, there's some energy around what they're needing to focus on. And I want to capitalize on that and hand them the pulsers as soon as possible, as soon as I hear that. So then uh, we just jump in and we start processing either through resourcing. Those of you who are trained in EMDR, you know what I'm talking about, where we're tapping in positive thoughts and positive emotions. Maybe something wonderful happened to them during the intervening couple of weeks since I saw them. Maybe they had a, a breakthrough in a relationship or they they started to feel more confident, more creative. And so we want to tap that in. So I want to use slow bilateral stimulation to um, to tap that in, to make it stronger. And I like to sandwich the session so that we have that happy stuff at the beginning, if possible. Sometimes it's not. And then we have the happy stuff at the end. And in between is the trouble. And we're we're doing processing on that. So that's structurally what it looks like? So I've heard you talk about two types of EMDR, performance EMDR, and what do you call the other type? Just EMDR. Just EMDR. So is the performance type more associated with the happy segments where you tap in positive? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Uh Ideally, we want to be able to focus on that violin concerto, and I want my client to play it all the way through with the symphony in the background, and we are tapping it in with slow bilateral stimulation pulses usually with the pulsers. Um, and so, yeah, but, but what always happens is there's trouble in it. Right. They hit a snag, and so then we have to go back. And we have to work on that that measure where they had the snag. I love that. That 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 really parallels the work I do as well. Um, How so? Well, just the fact that parts of my sessions feel like therapy, mm-hmm. and parts of my sessions feel like learning. Yes, lessons. Lessons. So part of it feels like performance PDTR, I'll say, because that's the main technique I use. And part of it feels like using PDTR or whatever technique I use to untangle problems. And then the other part feels like fun. It feels like learning. It feels like expansion and moving forward. Yeah. So, so a typical session with you involves somebody coming in and saying, I hurt or. Mainly they're, they're coming to me for physical pain. Mm -hmm. Some people come to me for other reasons, but most of the time they come to me for physical pain. And just like you, I start by listening Mm-hmm. And listening is one of the ways to help move me into ventral vagal mode oh, or social engagement. Good point. 
and I'm I'm doing the same thing you're doing. I'm looking for an entry point, and it could be movement or it could be what they're telling me. Um, and then I I jump in and I focus on the information gathering side of the equation. So my main focus is on sensory receptor corruption. Mm -hmm. So if somebody has trauma, a lot of times the sensory receptors around the physical trauma site will stay in a heightened state of electrical activity. That means those sensory receptors are sending corrupted information to your brain. And if you think about the way you live in the world as a simple three-step process, input, and then processing, and then output, mm -hmm. then if you're getting corrupted information going to the brain, the brain is making good decisions based on bad information. Yeah. In computer terms, they say garbage in, garbage out. So that corrupted information creates aberrant movement patterns or aberrant motor responses. Corrupted information could be like, I'm not safe, or everybody hates me, or I'm ugly, right? Corrupted information, yes, could be emotional like that, because emotions are a software problem just like sensory receptors are part of your information system or your software. Um, but those will usually move you into one of those broader biobehavioral states. Like fight, flight, and freeze? Right. So the emotional software problems will create this state shift, turn on defensive mechanisms Basically, turn off healing, turn off thinking, turn off the ability to be in the present. Mm -hmm. Mine, the sensory receptor corruption can contribute to that because some, some sensory receptors are nociceptors. They are sensing for noxious stimuli that could be dangerous to your body. So if you have a lot of sensory receptors that are nociceptors that are corrupted, it moves you into sympathetic dominance or fight flight. So nociceptors that are corrupted are are picking up on false uh, danger, perhaps, or false um, negativity. Basically, you're carrying the past with you into the present. So you're carrying that active sensory receptor corruption from a prior trauma into every present moment. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that attracted me so much to EMDR is EMDR talks about how people carry the past into the present. Right. And and so back to Penny, that was part of what was going on. Yes. Carrying a past event into the present 
in her body, right? That's right. And it was it was associated, well, it, two things. She had an event when she had an, a, a C-section. Uh-huh. It was very traumatic for her mm-hmm. and for her child being born. Um, but also I found a nociceptive dysfunction in her body that I treated, but that had been present since she had the C-section, and it was always predisposing her to being in a state of fight-flight. Right. Yeah, so we may get into this a little bit more after we take another break, but for now, what what was it that we were looking at when she first came in? I mean, I remember that she was saying she just, she felt depressed. She felt worthless. She didn't really want to get together with other people. Um, right. The first thing physically I noticed is that when I had her lie on her back, she immediately sat up. That's right. I mean, she she did everything she could to keep from just lying on her back. Mm-hmm. So that's what led me to this idea that part of her depression and malaise was associated with the trauma, some trauma w- w- that occurred when she was lying on her back. Right. Thus, the C-section. Right. Yeah. Right. But it was so helpful to have you there because as I rev up these dysfunctions, it amplifies their fight defensive mechanism response. I see. But then I would just look to you, have uh-huh. a moment of co-regulation. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I was able to just stay in the moment and move forward. Right. It was the eye contact, these moments of eye contact. You're still there. Yes, great. And and um, it was helpful for me, too. And after the break, I'll say a little bit more about that, how on my side of things, it was helpful to have you in the room doing doing your thing as well. Okay. So we'll be back in a moment. Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. 
VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive. Welcome back to Reconceive. Tracy and I are talking about going rogue today. And we just told a story um, about a colleague of ours, Penny, who we worked with together as a team last week. And I wanted to come back to that because, Tracy, you were talking about how having me in the room was helpful for you. We were able to co-regulate. And so you were basically finding these these receptor uh, problems and treating them. Um, and I was basically sitting there <laughs> and just, I was just there. But prior to that, um, I had done a little bit of uh, EMDR with Penny and um, had discovered that when she became overwhelmed and very tearful and she was at her, you know, the height of her distress and talking about feeling worthless and talking about feeling like she couldn't do anything right and she would never achieve, you know, what she thought she ought to achieve and she felt like a terrible parent and all these things, that it overwhelmed me. So I was I was able, working with you, to just set that aside and let you work and I didn't get overwhelmed. We totally bypassed the problem that I have had with her extreme distress and how triggering it had been for me. Oh yeah. The, the co-regulation part of this is fantastic, but also if I had become overwhelmed or if I had felt myself moving into a state of fight flight. So if I felt defensive mechanisms being activated, as long as you're there, we could actually trade at that moment. You could tap in Mm. and you could take over and do one of the things you do, Mm -hmm. EMDR or whatever. Right. Like if I hear you working and, and you get to a point where the client can actually say, well, I did this right, or at least this went well, I could jump in and using resourcing, EMDR, tap that in, make it stronger right there and then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it'll make the work that we do together, I think that work will be more enduring. I think it will be faster. Mm -hmm. I think it will be more comprehensive. Yeah. And I think it will be healing for us as well as the client. I think so, too. So we're going rogue, and here's what that means. We're going to start doing things in a very non-traditional way, or to put it differently, we're going to go back to the 60s. (laughs) The 60s, and then we're adding to that and using all the science that's validated that, uh, including proprioceptive deep tendon reflex techniques. PDTR. PDTR, that's the main thing I do. That's what I was describing. Mm -hmm. And I'm just 
thrilled with this idea. It's it's got us both looking forward to creating a new paradigm. Yes, a new paradigm, which basically um, got squashed. As we mentioned earlier, um, there are these ideas in in therapy, in the therapy world, that have to do with um, doing therapy together, co-therapy, that were researched in the 60s and early 70s. That's when we were doing a lot of co-therapy, um, mainly in university counseling centers, where you had um, maybe a family that you were working with, but you had a whole reflecting team behind the one-way mirror, and they were watching and listening, and they could call in advice to you. It was really powerful. Um, and I got to do some of this in my graduate school experience. It was amazing. Um, and then it kind of went away. Why did it go away? Why did we stop doing co-therapy? And why was nobody writing about it? Well, it seems as if the idea for doing co-therapy initially or originally would go back to the idea that the health of the therapist is important too. Right. Ooh. And that got lost. That got lost. Now we're more at a, the therapist is disposable. Oh. Although I think the pandemic, because therapists were in such high demand, maybe that triggered why we're thinking about this. The therapist got disposable. You just blew me away, Tracy. That is exactly the feeling that I have had for years. That even though I do this high-level skill, uh, I'm disposable. I'm just, I'm just supposed to do this thing, and I'm supposed to see as many people in a day as I can. My well-being is not on the table for discussion. It doesn't matter. How does it feel to be unappreciated? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a part of the myths in this burnout problem. Oh, I do too. I do too. Hopefully we can change it to where insurance companies will always pay for two therapists. Wouldn't that be amazing? It would. I think we're going to cut therapy time in half. Right. If, 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 if that happens, maybe they would consider it because I think the work we do together will cut therapy time in half. And then we can go into lessons or performance EMDR. Yes. The part of the, the process that helps the client really expand yeah. and discover that life can be more than they ever thought it could be. Right. Instead of just getting to a point where you can function and where you're not crying all the time, what if therapy, in air quotes, became lessons in how to thrive and how to really do the things that you're passionate about and feel great all the time. Right. I mean, that's exciting for therapist and client. Very much so. Yeah. So going rogue for us obviously means co-therapy. It means interdisciplinary therapy. We are from two different disciplines and we're mashing them together like chocolate and peanut butter. Right. I'm a massage therapist. I don't do any traditional massage, but uh, Deborah's a psychotherapist. 
And I remember when we were first talking about working together, we related it back to the old Reese's peanut butter cup commercials <laughs> where one person was walking with a chocolate bar. The other has an open jar of peanut butter. And they say, you got your chocolate in my peanut butter. Yeah. They bump into each other. They just go, they're different, but they go together beautifully. And the funny part of the story is Deborah didn't remember the oldest Reese's commercials, which at the end of the commercial, like there was one with Noah. And after they got their chocolate and the peanut butter, this it started to rain. Noah of the Bible, right? Right. And they said, and the world would have to wait. <laughs> well, here we are. The world no longer has to wait. It is time. So, yeah, it's time for this chocolate peanut butter therapy. Um, that So, as you said, I'm a psychologist. You are a massage therapist or or neuromuscular therapist or body psychotherapist. Body psychotherapist, I believe, is the best term. I do, too. Yeah. I've always thought that. Yeah. But also, you're a dancer and I'm a musician and I love to paint. And you are getting trained in Anat Benyel neuromovement. And all of these things go together. They do. Yeah. Yeah. They're not just for our hobbies for the weekend. Right. And in my practice, over the years, I've learned that emotional pain is always part of physical pain and vice versa. And that goes back to what we talked to Amy Banks about, which is the acronym is SPOT, social pain overlap theory, where emotional pain and physical pain are the same thing. Same thing. Mm -hmm. But the, the weird thing is, at least it still feels weird to me, is when I talk to my clients who are there for me to help them with physical pain, they're always surprised or almost always surprised when I start to reveal the emotional component of their pain. And quite often they're irritated or uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. So having a psychologist in the room, I think will put them at ease when I start addressing emotional components of their physical pain. I think so too. Yeah. And and I have the the inverse of that whenever I try to tie emotional pain to stated physical pain, like, okay, you're, you're having trouble with your mood. You feel awful emotionally, but you also have this low back pain that's always with you. I get a lot of pushback from that. But having you there, since you can validate and say the appropriate things, you've got all the right knowledge, um, you can speak to that. You're right there. So it makes perfect sense to talk about them together. More bang for the buck. Exactly. A much more comprehensive session. Right. So I know we're getting close on time. I want to 
refer to um, a couple of writers that that I've talked about before, Thomas Scovolt and Michelle Trotter Matheson, um, who wrote The Resilient Practitioner. And um, this is a book all about burnout and compassion fatigue prevention. And um, I want to go to some things that they've said about professional development over the lifespan, because, you know, some of some of our listeners are you know, maybe in your 20s or 30s and you're just getting started and some of you are kind of in the middle phase of your career and maybe some of you have been doing this for 30 years like I have. And so you're old (laughs) and you're noticing that you're different now. So here are a couple of um, juicy tidbits about what's true over the course of the lifespan and why it makes sense to go rogue. So professional development involves an increasing higher order integration of the professional self and the personal self. That's another chocolate peanut butter situation. Mixing my personal self with my professional self makes more sense the older I get. So I can, I don't have to feel so stymied, so rigid. I can, I can bring more of myself into the room and it's okay. I love it. You're making a lot of people gasp, I'm sure. I know. You're probably probably uncomfortable hearing this. Um, another thing that I think is really important here, an in, as intense commitment to learn, an intense commitment to learn propels the developmental process. We need to keep learning. And, and I don't just mean going to continuing education workshops. We need to keep learning in order to stay engaged emotionally in this thing that we do. And we need to be intrigued by things and we need to be getting new information, things that we hadn't thought of before. We need to be hobnobbing with people in different disciplines who can tell us about the spine. And we need to be learning more about ourselves oh my God. so we can have a, yeah. a better felt sense yeah. about our clients. Right. That's very edgy. Learning more about ourselves to have a felt sense about our clients. So our own therapy matters and our own sharing of the load matters. Our own continued learning matters. And I think I would want to challenge our listeners to just find out where you can get that. It might be in a surprising place. So we've got to close soon. Um, write to us, please, dear listeners, at reconceivetherapy at gmail.com. And we'll be back next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Reconceive. We hope you've learned something today you can use to reconnect and feel better. Tune in next week for more on transforming practice. Until then, have a great week.